Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. We're here for episode nine. It's been a busy couple of weeks, so I haven't been able to to knock out uh, one of these podcasts as much as I'd like. It is sort of challenging sometimes. I really like to stick to a consistent schedule, but I'm not always able to do that. So here we are. Anyway, this episode, I'm calling Potpourri for a Thousand Alex, in tribute to Alex Trebek from Jeopardy. But occasionally what I realized is I'm going to, I would like to have one of these Potpourri, more of a free-form podcast to cover little topics, or if I had mentioned something that I wanted to follow up on, I thought it would be an easier way to do it. And then what I'll do is in the show notes, if you're not interested in listening to the entire podcast, I'll give you the uh, times that the particular topic is being talked about. So if you want to skip around, that's great. If not, and you want to listen to the whole thing, that'd be great too. So I have a lot to talk about today. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is, I'm presuming if you're listening to this, you enjoy podcasts like I do. I have enjoyed podcasts for many years. And over the course of time, my tastes, my taste, tastes in podcasts have changed. I've added, I've deleted, I've gone back to uh, podcasts that I first listened to. I think I've been primarily listening to podcasts about seven years, about mid-2015, maybe late 2014. I don't quite recall, but it's in that time frame. And I really enjoyed podcasts. And I realized that, well, my learning style, yes, I'm visual like everybody. Yes, um, I learn by reading. But I also get tremendous value out of listening. Number one, I can determine when I want to do it. And number two is that I am... I can remember things quite well when they're spoken, provided I understand what the person is saying. Uh, but there are sometimes audio podcasts can be a lot to ingest, and it's easy to just repeat uh, podcasts to go over concepts or topics or what have you, facts. I wanted to talk about podcasts that I have on my phone right now that I enjoy. Okay, so first one is the Huberman Lab. I've started listening to that recently in the last few months. I heard him on the Joe Rogan experience, who's on Spotify. I do enjoy Joe Rogan's podcast, so I'll make it aside for a second. I do enjoy the Joe Rogan podcast quite a bit. Do I listen to every episode on every podcast? Absolutely not. I do tend to pick and choose, and I'll listen to, and I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience is you can have one of the most, let's say, a famous person, whether it's uh, an actor or scientist or what have you, politician maybe, and you listen to them and I can't listen to them. I listen to them for a minute, two minutes. I I'm, can't do it. Whatever it is, the tone of their voice, the pace of their speaking, whatever it is that they don't gel with the person being interviewed, uh, I can't do it. So it doesn't really matter there. Uh, but, uh, you know, Joe Rogan's got a pretty good podcast and I've uh, I've learned quite a bit. And he's had some challenging people on. And I especially enjoyed a lot of the contrarians about uh, during COVID. They were uh, very enjoyable. But I also enjoy some of the political things on his podcast too. Okay, back to the Huberman Lab. The Huberman Lab, I find, is a very scientific um, it can be an intense podcast, generally very good. They're generally very long, which can be challenging, again, to listen to the entire thing. Um, just a, just an anecdote here about the Huberman Lab. 
I heard uh, Andrew Huberman, he's a neuro, not quite a neurologist, I think a neurophysiologist at Stanford Medical School, and he runs his own research lab. And I had heard him on Joe's podcast, and he was talking about caffeine and how to, one, improve your sleep. And to do that, you need to adjust your caffeine intake. Caffeine, besides being a stimulant, it also blocks, I believe it's a neurotransmitter called adenosine. It's part of the, the energy cycle in our cells, but adenosine builds up. And as it builds up, we tend to get sleepy. And the problem is that if you take caffeine too quickly after you've woken up, you don't allow the adenosine to come off the receptors in your central nervous system, and uh, you're going to have a crash in the afternoon. Anyway, so that was pretty eye-opening for me. He was a second scientist that I had heard say that. So I did make that change, and it has definitely improved my uh, quality of sleep and also how I feel and realizing me back to the days when I never even had caffeine until I was in college. So Huberman Lab has been very enjoyable, intense and scientific. Okay. Uh, another one is Radiolab. I've been listening to Radiolab for about seven years. I did take a break for quite a while because I felt they were getting a little too political. This is not a political podcast, obviously. It's a science-based podcast about animals. But I don't particularly enjoy when podcasts get too political. I don't mind interviews with people or discussing topics, but when I feel they've sort of crossed the line and are, are pushing a uh, narrative and maybe they don't even realize they're doing it, I will drop out. So I listened to Radio Lab for many years, and then I dropped out for a couple of three years, and now I'm back. And I feel there's an occasional political podcast. I just don't listen to it or a very you know, in my opinion, slanted podcast, but they've had some really fantastic podcasts. And I do remember one about the start of the human race and what we descended from after uh, the asteroid, I think it's an asteroid or a meteorite, asteroid um, that impacted the earth millions of years ago off the Yucatan Peninsula and basically killed the dinosaurs. And there's a if you go on YouTube, there is a video. And I'm not going to post a link for it, but you'll be able to find it. Um, how humans originated. And they did a fantastic job. And they actually, that podcast on as sort of like a play, they had an audience and it was on a stage and it's magnificent. I just love that. And Radiolab will do a lot of science-based human and human-based interest stories. And I find them rather enjoyable. And then they do play a lot of old podcasts, but I think now there's a paywall. It's a paid service. You can have access to some of their podcasts. I, I don't know if it's if you searched on YouTube if you could find more. Okay, another one that I listen to is Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. I've read all of his books. I find them I find it to be helpful, help me understand the world, people, some historic events, historical excuse me, historical events. Again, I think he's gotten a little again, I took a break from him. He was one of the first ones I listened to. And I do enjoy his take, deeper dives on things. He did a really, I think, great deep dive. For example, there was one season he talked about Toyota and what happened with the unintended acceleration. And then he did a, a deep dive into the Ferguson, Missouri riots and why they happened. And he did talk about the Michael Brown incident. I'm not getting into that, but I thought it was just really well done and very informative. And I think he can have some really great podcasts and I think the yeah, other podcasts and some that I don't really enjoy that much. The next one I listen to, 
again, is one that I started with and then I took a break and now I'm back is Stuff You Should Know. Generally, they're pretty good. Some deeper dives into certain topics. It's a little bit lighter. I'm not listening to Stuff You Should Know to 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 retain a lot of information. It's more entertaining for me. They do have some interesting facts on things. So that's rather enjoyable. Next one I have is the Art of Manliness podcast. Really enjoy this. It's one-on-one interviews with yeah. interesting people. A lot of people have written books. Yes, they're there to promote the books, but they also have a lot of interesting takes. And I uh, just listened to a podcast about uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president during World War II and a little before World War II. <laughs> and uh, the author had looked at how polio had affected FDR, and the polio really changed him. And that was an interesting bit of information. It made him a little more human. Okay, so that's the art of manliness. Uh, probably the first show that I really ever listened to on a podcast was Car Talk. I used to listen to them every Saturday morning. They used to play um, their recorded show, which at the time I didn't really realize they were recording the show during the weekend. They were playing on the weekends. I always assumed, and they sort of led you to believe that it was actually a live program, and it wasn't, but it's still good, still enjoyable. I love to learn about cars. Uh, cars are fun. I love um, mechanical things and, and um, do enjoy gas-powered engines. The car talk is an oldie but a goodie. And the last one I listened to is a slightly more political podcast. It's the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Subscribe to National Review. And Charles is an editor there and writes. uh, I don't get the print version. I just do the online version. But he writes basically opinion pieces that I find quite enjoyable. Uh, And the podcast has been pretty good. He had another partner at National Review, but he left and they would do a, mostly a weekly podcast talking about topics, sometimes baseball, which was a lot of fun. So Charles does talk about certain things. He he had somebody talking about the Beatles. He loves the Beatles. He is English, but he's an American citizen living in Florida. And uh, so I enjoy this. I enjoy his topics and I enjoy his, uh, his guests. He does some interviews with people. So it's pretty good. And I think that rounds out all my podcasts. And and my own, I have to listen to my own. I don't really listen to them, but I do listen to them over. I do produce this show to the best of my ability. I know it's not always the greatest audio. I keep working on trying to improve that. I do listen to my programs over, and I do cut out some dead space. And you would you would real you you would be surprised maybe if you've never done this when you're doing it alone. You don't really realize, not not alone, but I'm the only one here speaking, is how difficult it is to actually speak to nobody. I'm speaking to you in my mind, but I'm not seeing you. I'm getting no feedback. And you realize the pauses, the, the likes, the ums that you say. So I've always tried to keep improving and not say um and like and those sorts of and those sorts of words. I know they're pretty much nonsense, but you, you, you're trying to. I'm trying to put out a quality product to the best of my ability. So it has been challenging. So that was the first topic. I think I covered that pretty well. I really love podcasts. I listen to them around the house. I listen to them on car rides sometimes. I listen to them when I'm walking sometimes. It just really depends on on my mood and and what the topic is. So podcasts, I think, have been a been a tremendous benefit to society. Okay, my next topic I wanted to mention. This is this is a uh, takeoff from the Diagnostic Podcast. Which let me look and find out what episode that is. 
if I can find it here, my episodes. Okay. So what episode was that? Making a diagnosis was episode four. And I gave a general overview of making a diagnosis. So there's two things I wanted to talk about there. I gave a, a mostly the diagnosis was basically of a medical condition. And I gave some simple, simple disease examples and not always a disease, but uh, let's say the believer was the cut paw on that great thing. So some diagnoses are very easy to come by and some are quite the opposite. They're very difficult and maybe you never make a true diagnosis. There are cases, and I didn't really talk about it, I did write it in the show notes, that sometimes surgery is required to, one, assist with the diagnosis or the diagnosis requires surgery. There's a disease in dogs, uh, it's abbreviated GDV, gastric dilatation and virulence. That's where the the stomach literally fills up with gas and then twists on itself. It's a very acute problem. I think over the years that as dog foods have improved, we've seen less and less of it. There was I saw quite a few in vet school. I saw one when I was in practice early on, but I don't know that I ever saw another one. So probably my experience is similar to what a lot of uh, vets are seeing that uh, that that disease has decreased. But Number one, to confirm the diagnosis, you can see it on an x-ray, basically, you can make the diagnosis, but really to confirm the diagnosis, you have to operate. And if there's not too much damage to the stomach, you can, um, it's a torsion, so the guts just turn, twist, and turn on themselves. And that's, uh, it sounds like a bad thing, and it is, because when the guts twist, they cut off the blood supply. And once you cut off the blood supply to a part of the body, then you get tissue, the cells dying, and that's called necrosis. And that releases a tremendous amount of, as you can imagine, poisonous products into the body and inflammation in the body. And sometimes animals don't even survive that. But to number one, uh, really confirm the diagnosis, you need to do surgery, you need to operate, you need to go into the abdomen. And number two, to fix the problem, you need to operate. So that would be a very, relatively simple and straightforward diagnosis. And the the confirmation is surgery and the, air quotes, fix is surgery. The uh, other side of that is that sometimes a difficult diagnosis, you don't get to it the first time. So you might, as I said, you have uh, you have a list of differential diagnoses and you might do testing to rule some of those diseases in or processes in and or rule them out. And let's say you do get to the end of your first list, you might then have to add new diseases or processes onto that list and then continue on, maybe see how an animal responds to treatment or maybe do some further diagnostic testing or maybe you have to refer the patient. It all depends on where you are in the country, what the financial means of the owner is, what your skills and what your limitations are. Because as a, as a, as a doctor, as a veterinarian, I do believe it's quite important to know where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are so that you can better serve the, the client and the animal. And then number two is, are there other vets in the practice? Or is there a, a practice that you're friendly with that's that's relatively close that you can say, okay, Dr. So-and-so specializes in this. We can refer you over to them if you choose to. And the client might not want to. The client might want to stay with you and keep working to try to figure out what's going on. So it can be a very straightforward process of making a diagnosis, but it also can be sort of a messy process with many forks in the road that you go down. And I think at one point I will um, 
I have a book that I'm rereading for the hence time. I want to have a podcast on that. And it talks about bias, which is extremely important. We all have biases in almost everything we do and think. And that can impact how our doctor thinks and how our doctor um, perceives himself and perceives what's going on with, you know, same in us. A physician is the same. They all have biases. So if you're aware of your biases as best as possible, even though making a diagnosis won't be easy, it'll allow you and your mind to come up with alternative possibilities. So making a diagnosis is not always straightforward. It's not always easy. You may never get a true diagnosis. You may find that your symptomatic treatment, which I'm going to talk about, is another topic I'm going to talk about. You may find that your symptomatic treatment is actually working. And again, I'm going to say, air quotes, solves the problem, or at least it, it ameliorates or lessens the severity of the problems that the animal can live with it. And again, you know, in veterinary medicine, we are constrained by finances many times. Human medicine, we're not so, of course, I'm not a physician, but you're not so constrained in, in, um, with a financial limit. So most tests that are available are, are, are an option for human beings. It's not always true of animals. So I just wanted to have that aside on making a diagnosis. So I'd mentioned in that segment on making a diagnosis, symptomatic treatment. Symptomatic treatment, we all do it to ourselves, actually. Uh, some people do it to their own pets. And a physician will do it and a veterinarian will do it. What do I mean by symptomatic treatment? Symptomatic treatment is you can take almost any problem, unless it's a true life-threatening problem, like the GDV or the bloat case that I said. Symptomatic treatment is not going to work for that. But there are cases where symptomatic treatment will work. So let's take the case of an itchy dog. Anybody that's had a dog knows they scratch, they lick, they do certain things, sometimes more than others. And if an animal is having a very intense problem where it's feeling very itchy, it's going to start chewing and gnawing and it might take off the hair. So we might get alopecia, we're going to get hair loss. The animal might be incessantly scratching and itching. And especially I found if that's happening at night, that means that animal is quite uncomfortable. And if that, if that patient animal is brought into the clinic, veterinarian takes a look at it, they might determine something simple like it's fleas, and you can use an anti-flea treatment and give the animal some medications to, to reduce or eliminate the severity of the scratching. So that, that's a very simple symptomatic treatment. A symptomatic treatment in us, say you have the sniffles, you use some over-the-counter medication, maybe Advil or one of those things like Dayquil, NyQuil, that's symptomatic treatment. You're not rushing off. You don't. You can still function. You don't need to be hospitalized. You figure maybe I don't need to see the doctor, but you treat yourself. That's symptomatic treatment. You're treating your symptoms. So we say symptomatic treatment. There's no such thing as clinical science treatment. That term doesn't really exist. But even though in veterinary medicine, we really are focusing on clinical science, we're not focusing on symptoms. We still call it symptomatic treatment. So maybe somebody should come up with a better term in veterinary medicine for symptomatic treatment. But we're treating what we see. So it, it's all going to depend. A uh, case of uh, diarrhea in a, in a puppy, uh, you could run a couple of simple tests. Maybe you run an in-office parvo test and it comes up negative and your dog's eating, bouncing around. It's it's a puppy acting like a puppy. No vomiting, dog's holding down swing, but it's got some, some loose stool. Um, you do a, an 
you could do it in office or send it out. And over in parasite, check for uh, intestinal parasites, GI parasites. That comes up negative, but it's a puppy. And let's just say the people bought it from maybe not even, a, let's say the puppy was not purchased from a pet shop. Let's say the puppy was was adopted or got or adopted from a shelter or they bought it from a family or somebody, a breeder raising dogs, puppies. And you deworm the dog. And sometimes your symptomatic treatment is going to, again, I'm going to use air quotes, solve the problem or a cure. Just because you administer a deworming product to that puppy with soft stool or loose stool and and the stool firms back up and is again normal, doesn't necessarily mean that that symptomatic treatment actually worked. It could just be a coincidence. And that does happen quite a bit in medicine. So symptomatic treatment is just going to depend what's going on with the patient. And it's also going to depend, again, on people's finances. You can have a very sick dog vomiting and diarrhea, and they don't have a lot of money. And you can send them home as an outpatient to try certain things. I'm not going to get into all the treatments, but you can also say to the people, okay, you've got X amount of money. Here's what I can do. You go over the estimate with them. You symptomatically treat your dog, you send the dog home. And what I would do with with owners is say, okay, here's what I'm giving this animal. If, and this was fairly frequent vomiting itself or vomiting and diarrhea, where the patient actually looked pretty good. The patient wasn't collapsed. The patient wasn't completely dehydrated. I would give them things to do at home, things to watch for. So if the vomiting were to continue and they did everything that I asked, administered all the medications and the treatment that I sent the animal home with, some would be administered in the hospital and the patient still vomited, well, that's going to go to the next step. And that means it's probably a more serious problem. So symptomatic treatment is certainly worthwhile in patients. We do it in us. And let's say your your take well doesn't work and you're feeling worse and worse and worse, you go to the doctor. So we all know what symptomatic treatment is. So maybe in, over time, I'll come up with a, a better a better term than symptomatic treatment. Okay, my next topic is I wanted to briefly talk about what's called herd or population medicine versus individual medicine. And I don't think, I, I think with COVID, again, real quick example in front of everybody's mind and face for the last three years almost, is there's been lots of talk about what's going on. And in medicine, whether it's human medicine or animal medicine, there's really two types of medicine. If you think about a giant umbrella covering all animals or all people, and we'll just use the United States as an example. You can talk about all the dogs in the United States. That's a, that's a herd. That's a herd or a population. You can also talk about all the dogs or uh, I practice dairy medicine. You can talk about all the dairy cattle on one farm as a population. Or you could talk about all female cats in New York State, as an example. So those are populations. The human beings in the United States are a population. Uh, the entire world of all the human beings is a certain population. All the men on the earth are a population. All the children, all the male children, all the female children, all the black, all the white, can be subpopulations or their own population when you're talking about <clears throat> medicine. And then there's the individual. So you treat the population and you look at the population in one way, but individuals may or may not, for example, experience the same symptoms or clinical signs as the entire population. So let's take that puppy when I talked about parvo. 
Parvo was my sixth podcast, and I said I had seen a puppy, happy puppy bouncing around on the table, on the exam table, super happy to be seen and touched and see people. And had some soft stool, and I did the in-office test, and it was positive for Parvo. So that dog had Parvo, but he wasn't the classic textbook Parvo case where the dog has vomiting, the dog has diarrhea, the dog is flat out needed to be hospitalized. That dog not need to be hospitalized. So he did not fit the classic picture of a parvo puppy. And that's true of, of human beings as well. You may not have every symptom in a disease. There's a, usually a spectrum. Usually there's quite a few symptoms in, in people that we can express or can be shown or that we're feeling. And your experience might be different than everybody else's experience. And the the reason I'm pointing this all out is sometimes the the two the the herd slash population medicine and the individual medicine people get confused on, and I I understand that confusion because I think human beings I think especially during COVID as again as an example I'm, there's no blame here I'm just saying I don't think that the people in charge were very good about talking about what the individual risks are and what the population risks are. Now we've basically come out of COVID. We're all, you know, obviously uh, at least a million people died. Some died because of COVID, some died with COVID. I'm not here to argue that. The entire population of the United States now is, it, it's still here. We A million people did die, but the entire population of the United States is, that remains is still here. So. Yes, it's a threat to the, again, we'll use the American population for a minute. Yes, COVID was a threat to the entire American population, but for most people in that population, it really wasn't. It was only really critical to a one a million out of 330 million Americans. So overall, it was a tiny impact to the overall population, but to the individuals that lost family members or obviously the people that did uh, die from COVID or with COVID, it was a big impact. And then I think we as human beings tend to look at those things as the most significant, and they are to us. And you may not be thinking about overall in the in the population of the United States. You're not really thinking about that when you lose a loved one, and I understand that. But when you're talking about at the government, at the federal level, they really, in my opinion, should be looking out at the population. Yes, they should tell you as an individual what the risks are, but they can't really protect you as an individual. They're going to tell you to do all these certain things, hopefully educate you so you can make an informed decision on on what to do. That, that's really the difference. And so, number one, getting clarity on you know, us here, when you're listening to this podcast, most of us are not in control of it, of a particular animal population. You're you, you might have a couple of dogs, a cat, whatnot, fish, doesn't really matter, a horse. That's not a, your population is one or two, okay? Most of us are not having a giant population of animals in your life. Some of you will, there'll be very few of you, but some of you will, and that's going to matter quite a bit. If you have a large population of animals, that means there's some sort of economic uh, import to that, and it could be your livelihood. So you're going to treat, hopefully treat those animals. Uh, you're going to have to look at a lot of different things like biosecurity, personnel, the health of the, the personnel working with the animals, what you're feeding them, what you're watering them with, how you're cleaning their their environment. 
and all those things are going to have an impact. So you're going to be looking at the overall population and, and a disease in a population or any problem in a population, population. If you get bad feed, all the animals are fed it and half the animals die. That is a giant problem. Okay. So if the feed were contaminated with something, it could wreak havoc on your business. Wreak havoc, obviously, on the, on the animals. Cause a lot of suffering, probably. But population medicine is important. And I think as time goes on, you'll hear more and more about population management of the population in terms of uh, you know disease and disease prevention. And then what the individual's experience is and your individual pet's experience. And it may not be what's experienced for the entire population. I don't know if that was helpful or not, but I thought it was something that was under, at least for my eyes in the last three years with COVID, was under-discussed, and it doesn't negate anybody's own experience with it. And it is important. Your experience is important. But again, that's your experience or whatever my experience is or somebody else's experience. So I hope I hope that helped give people a little bit more of an in-depth point to think about when, when we when we hear about these global problems or country problems or state problems or regional problems. It just really depends. And uh, I'll give you an example of a of a, a basically a, a eastern United States problem is avian influenza. It's transmitted by wild birds and domestic uh, birds, you know, or your your small flock of chickens or your small flock of ducks can be susceptible. And birds, ducks can fly in from, of course, right now Canadian geese are migrating all over the place. So avian influenza can be spread. And if you like eggs and avian influenza gets into a hen house, and let's say it's a business that has a million laying hens and they get wiped out, that's going to cause a problem. And birds are being uh, affected throughout the east, east coast and the southeast. So that is a regional problem. It is a population problem, basically. It's also an individual animal problem. Most people probably won't hear about it. But in veterinary medicine, we get alerts from uh, different states, sometimes the USDA, if you're a federally accredited veterinarian, which I am, which you get uh, information from the USDA. Uh, and they tell you the USDA is really looking out for um, <clears throat> the animal health segment of the USDA is really looking for, out for animal health. So they're tracking things and they're tracking diseases such as avian influenza. And they have veterinarians that are working on that. So that's a good example of a regional. It is a national problem basically for the entire United States, but it's more of an East Coast, Southeast type of problem. Okay, I have a little follow-up from the last couple of podcasts. Number one is the last podcast, the feline parvovirus. I had mentioned that I had come across a paper talking about feline parvovirus. So I do happen to have, uh, I found two papers on feline parvovirus and is it impacting, can it be found in the heart cells of cardiac myocytes in, in cats with cardiomyopathy, which is disease of the heart? And the first paper here is from March, April of two, 2000. Okay, this was, excuse me, that was the journal. It was, uh, the journal is Cardiovascular Pathology, it looks like. Published online in June, uh, June 21st of 2000. I'll put links down in the show notes. And in this paper, they did find, they identified in 10 of 31 cats, they did find 
virus, uh, the panleukopenia virus. So again, it was found in this one paper. It's not a lot of animals. 31 basically is a tiny number of, of mutants and to find 10. So basically one third of the cats in this paper uh, did have panleukopenia virus. Uh, these were cats with cardiomyopathy. They did have heart problems, but they did find panleukopenia. So there's one paper. And the one other paper, that paper was called, I'll tell you the one that found the, I'll uh, give you the name of it. It's called Molecular Screening by PCR Polymer Polymerase Chain Reaction Detects Panleukopenia Virus DNA in Formalin Fixed Hearts from Cats with Idiopathic Cardiomyopathy and Myocarditis. And then I found one other paper when I did a search. This is Searching PubMed, which I'd mentioned before. This paper was in Veterinary Pathology. It sounds like a journal. It was published July of 2017. I don't have the entire paper here. The first paper is, the entire paper is available. This one is behind a paywall. I didn't pay for this. And let me read you the name. It's feline panleukopenia virus is not associated with myocarditis or endomyocardial restrictive cardiomyopathy in cats. And they had a population of 36 animals. So it says here, although eight of 36, which was 22% of shelter kittens had had parvovirus DNA in their heart tissue. DNA was not detected in 33 adult cases or 34 controls, controls meaning animals with no cardiomyopathy. These findings were confirmed. Adult cats did not have detectable parvovirus DNA, although rare intranuclear signal was confirmed in seven or eight shelter source kittens. In kittens, parvovirus was not significantly associated with myocarditis and in, did not localize with... Okay. I don't need to read the rest of it. But basically, this one is, there was something there in kittens. They didn't find anything in adult cats. And what does this really point out? There's only two papers. It's not been a big topic of discussion. It's been looked at. And when you get a paper, in, in, the, in my thinking, when you get a research paper that says there's something there, and then you get another paper that says it's not there, that tells you that maybe there is something and maybe there isn't. You can't hang your hat, so to speak on either one. The numbers of animals in these studies are small. This second study was 36, 33, and 34. So let's see, that's 67 and 36 is 97, 103 animals. It's not a lot of animals. There's millions of cats in the United States, right? So here you go, talking about a population. There's a population of millions, tens of millions of cats in the United States, and they studied 100. I don't know if that's really representative of the millions of cats out there. And the first study, the population was even it was even much less. There was 31 cats, and there were 17 controlled cats. So that study comprised 48 cats. So again, you're talking not even 50 cats out of tens of millions. They found something, okay? They found something in that population. It's just, a, in my mind, the way I think about this is it's possible. It's possible that parvovirus is causing uh, long-term problems in the hearts of cats. There's no causation. There's only a correlation of a maybe, maybe it's causing a problem. Causation means you can basically definitively prove that X happens, X disease happens, and then Y, meaning that the cats got infected with parvo, parvo damaged the heart, done deal versus, well, cats have heart disease. They found parvo, but they're not sure if parvo really caused the heart damage or not. So it's a toss up. It's possible, 
when there's only two papers, one says yes, one says no, it's hard to go either way. There's four trying to split it down the middle. It's certainly possible that part of it's causing a problem in cats, but nobody's really done a lot of work on it. The work that's been done, I don't think there's enough patients to really be definitive either way. So it's possible. Again, links down in the show notes. I don't know that I'm ever really going to have an entire podcast on clinical pathology. And I had mentioned clinical pathology again back in that episode on making a diagnosis. And clinical pathology, most people would think about it as diagnostic testing, blood testing would probably be the number one thing thing people think about. Lots of other clinical pathologic testing that can be done. There's histology where you take tissue samples. Sometimes that's done from the inside of the uh, animal, and sometimes it's easily taken by the outskin or on the from the external. You might take a piece of skin. Probably a lot of you have had some, if you've ever had skin problems, and they take a biopsy, submit it to the lab. That's a clinical pathology test. Um, but there's a relatively new test in veterinary medicine from the clinical pathology side. It's a blood test. It's called SDMA. And what is SDMA? Okay, SDMA is a blood test. What does SDMA stand for? Okay, SDMA stands for symmetric dimethylarginine. It's a marker. Some people call it a biomarker because it's, you know, animals, us, we're biological systems. I don't know if I'm going to be able to link to this or not. I'll try. I don't know if I can embed anything in, um, I don't know if that's even legal, but I can embed somebody else's um, paper in uh, the show notes. If I can, I will. If I can't, I won't. But it's from Clinician's Brief. It's a veterinary journal. And it's talking about these SDMA, and it's relatively new to the last few years. So SDMA is a marker for kidney function. Obviously, kidney function, if you think about it, is actually quite important in animals as in us. SDMA is specifically looking at what's called glomerular filtration rate or abbreviated GFR. So from going forward here in this discussion, I'm going to say GFR. GFR is basically how the blood blood is is sent to the kidneys. And inside the kidneys, there's these little units where the blood is flowing around and back out. And that's how um, the, the kidneys will filter through the glomerulus, which is a bundle, basically. Uh, it's basically a bundle of blood vessels, the toxins are extracted, and then the blood is returned back to the body. And anything that interferes with the glomerular filtration rate or the GFR will impact the kidneys. And there can be lots of causes of of, um, impacted GFR. It can be bacterial infections, there can be tumors, it can be cysts. Some of the external problems can be decreased uh, blood flow to the kidneys where the, maybe there's uh, an accident or the animal becomes hypovolemic and has lost a lot of blood and now the blood pressure is low and you're not getting quite as much blood flow and that does cause damage to the cells of the glomerulus, which is that unit. The glomerulus itself is the unit where uh, in the kidneys the blood is flowing through. Okay, So it's a marker of kidney disease. And what's really great about this is it is much more sensitive than the, it is the current state-of-the-art technology. But previously, up for most 30 years of my career, we only had a, a, a much more, the SDMA is a very sensitive, I shouldn't say very, it is a more sensitive indicator of kidney disease than the, what, what we had up until, this, until the point that this was commercially available. And previously, 
we had a test when you would take a blood test, right? So a blood test, generic term. Blood test meaning, in this case, if you're thinking about internal organ function, is a serum chemistry where you would take blood, you have to let it clot, you put it in, take blood, put it in a, in a blood tube, in a very specific blood tube, you spin that down, and what you have remaining, all the cells go to the bottom of the tube, and on the top is uh, the serum. And that's what's run through an, a machine called the chemistry analyzer. And there's, there's different companies, types. There's ones that have um, just cartridges. They're dry. They run with dry cartridges, and some have um, liquid reagents in them to run the tests. But be that as it may, in the old days, per se, we had what was called creatinine. And creatinine, like SDMA, are waste products from cellular metabolism. So really, when we think about all of these problems, any disease process, it's always about the individual cells. The thing is, with creatinine, still available, still tested for, creatinine was not a very sensitive indicator, meaning that you had to lose an animal, had to have damage to both kidneys. Now, assuming the animal's got both kidneys, it had to lose three quarters of the functioning of the glomerulus. There had to be damage to three quarters of both of those kidneys for you could detect a change or an elevation in the level of creatinine in the serum. And that is a very insensitive test because by the time you see a, a rise, again, depending on what the problem is, but before you see a rise of creatinine, three quarters of both kidneys have to have suffered damage. And that's very late in a disease. It was an okay test. It was all we had. You can combine it with a urinalysis and looking at the specific gravity or the concentration of the urine. And that's what I like to do when I was in practice is get urine as much as possible when I was looking at blood work. That's how I was taught. And that's how I practice. And it gives you a much better indication of what the actual kidney function is like. So that is quite important. Now with SDMA is about twice as sensitive as creatinine, meaning that somewhere between, I saw 25% to 40% of the glomeruli have to have a problem. So about one third of the uh, glomeruli would be damaged versus two thirds to three quarters of the glomeruli damaged under creatinine. So SDMA is, a, is much more sensitive. It's not the earliest, it is the best technology that's out there right now to identify kidney disease. And then it would also be good to follow kidney disease in an animal. Kidney disease is somewhat common in dogs, but not as quite as common as in cats. And, and a lot of cats suffer with uh, chronic kidney disease and will uh, succumb to kidney disease. Dogs do too, but it's not quite to the extent that cats do. That's a whole other topic of discussion. So SDMA, this is an interesting um, article here from from clinician's brief. It's called SDMA Values, Interpretation and Application. And it's a literature, literature review of a paper called Analytical Quality Performance Goals for Symmetric Dimethylarginine in Cats. That's SDMA in cats. And that's in a journal called Veterinary Clinical Pathology, put out in 2021. And this is a review of that. So I want to read to you from this. It says, clinicians risk attributing significance to and overinterpreting small changes in SDMA that may reflect either normal changes in the individual patient or analytical variability. An individual patient may have a normal analyte result, whether healthy or sick, 
but the population-derived reference cutoff points may not apply to that patient. Changes, meaning trends, in an individual patient may be more meaningful. This touches on two things. We just talked about population medicine. So to derive what's called reference values, there's a range of normal and there's anything outside of that is abnormal. And they had to test a certain, I don't know how many, but a certain number of cats had to be tested over time. And they had to test animals that were healthy and that animals that were ill. And they come up with a reference range so you can tell what's normal and what's not. And just having gotten through the population and uh, individual medicine gushing portion of this podcast, there, this woman is referencing the population. And the problem is when you have a population not everybody or not every animal, let's say, I'll use the numbers from one to 10. And let's just say from numbers one to three, that's normal. Not every animal is going to be a two. Some are going to be a one, some are going to be a three, some are going to be a 3.5, some are going to be a four, some might be a five. So there is some gray zone. So when you're talking about an individual, and I've always said throughout these podcasts, Treat the patient, treat the individual. You treat what you see. And if you were to, let's say, take some blood work on this animal, you run your chemistry and you get your analysis and it all comes back and one value is slightly higher than normal, okay, it happens. Or it could be slightly lower than normal. It happens. So you have a couple of choices there. Talk to the client and say, hey, here's what I see. Maybe come back in three or four months. We'll pull another blood test. The animal's not experiencing any signs that show that there's a problem, maybe like drinking more water, peeing more, being outside the litter box with cats happens frequently, any vomiting, any problems with their diet. You know, and now I'm excluding that, you know, the cat maybe ate something like a, a toxic plant or got into something or there was a problem with the food. So eliminating all of that for a minute, everything is fine, eating regular food, whatever it is, no problems, no toxicities no disease exposures, you know, nothing that, that raises a flag. And let's say you're taking a blood blood sample and you come up with an abnormal value. You have a couple of choices. Like I said, you can recommend that they come back in a period of time to reassess if that's what they're interested in doing or monitor the animal a little more closely over the next, you know, few months, see if there's any changes. If there are any changes, then you can say, come back and we'll repeat the blood test. So it's you don't want to chase one value if everything else basically is looking normal. doesn't mean that there's not a problem, but it means it's a lot less likely. And so in medicine, I like to think in terms of possibility and probability. It's very rare that there's anything 100% definitive. Possible means, yes, it's possible. I, I put a lower, or if I'm going to give it a percentage, it's a lower percentage. That's for, from zero to 100. I would say possible is in that 10, 15, 20, 25% range. Probable means to me, it's probably more than 50% likely. 60, 75% sort of in that range. That's how my mind is thinking about these things. So, so SDMA to go back is a much more sensitive indicator, an earlier indicator than creatinine is. So there are certain things that can impact these values of SDMA. And one thing is the breed of the animal. Now, this paper, I believe, it's in cats, okay? So what breed of cat impacts the value, meaning the number that you get back from the lab? This also impacts SDMA, like I was talking about, but it also impacts creatinine, glucose, and total protein, and also the age of the patient. 
So there's lots of factors here. It's relatively early on in the use of SDMA, and as time goes on, there will be uh, there will be a better handle on what breeds, age cutoff, and things like that. So this wasn't a bad little overview. I have another paper here, which I can link to. There'll, there'll be a link. I have the whole paper here. It's put out in August of 2019. It was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine. It's called Symmetric Dimethylarginine Concentrations in Dogs with International Renal Interest Society Stage 4 Chronic Kidney Disease Undergoing Intermittent Hemodialysis. So the abstract Reading, uh, hitting a couple of highlights here from the abstract of the paper. The abstract is, sh is sort of like the short and sweet, cut and dried version of the entire paper. And it says SDMA is eliminated by renal excretion, which we know. If it wasn't eliminated by renal excretion, we probably wouldn't be talking about it as a, as a marker of kidney disease. And its concentration is highly correlated with the GFR in animals and humans. Only covered this paper's from. Uh, Brazil, and they looked at serum from 14 dogs, 24 dogs. So again, it's not a lot of dogs, but it's a guide. Doesn't mean it's the absolute uh, end-all, be-all, but it's a couple interesting points here. Uh, SDMA is found in humans, dogs, cats, rats, and mice. So it is not just a dog and cat or a human thing. It's probably in most most mammals, I would guess, that have a metabolism and cellular structure similar to us. Animals, I'm reading right from the paper. I'm in the introduction section. And it says, in animals, SDMA has been shown to have greater sensitivity and its concentration increases with an average of a 40% decrease in the GFR as compared to the serum creatinine, which I said, which will only increase when approximately 75% of kidney function is impaired. So there, there you have it. It's a earlier and more sensitive indicator. And is there anything else here that I wanted to talk about? No, I think that this paper, this paper is really talking about treatment modalities when you have kidney failure and how well did SDMA work as a marker for improving uh, kidney function through dialysis or just regular fluid therapy. And dialysis means you're taking the blood out and you're filtering toxins, which SDMA is a, is a waste product or you think about it as a toxic substance in the blood that the body tries to get rid of. And it's all just through normal cellular metabolism. And basically all your cells, same in us, your cells, your, your cells take in um, glucose and oxygen and they put out waste products. And one of the waste or two of the waste products we just talked about are creatinine and SDMA. And your kidneys are trying to filter that out of the blood. So you can think about the glomerulus as a, basically a filter system. So SDMA is a new test out there. It's helpful if you have an animal that has an elevation in SDMA. It could mean that there's kidney disease. You're going to have to talk to your veterinarian more specifically about what that means for your pet and what it means to you and then how that's going to impact, impact your pet long term. So if you have an animal, you have questions about that, please contact your local veterinarian. And I wish you the best of luck if you have a, a sick animal. I know it's difficult. That brings to a conclusion this episode, which is episode nine of the Clinical Science Podcast. You can contact me at askdrmatt at proton.me. That's A-S-K-D-R-M-A-T-T at proton, P-R-O-T-O-N dot M-E. If you have any comments, questions, I would appreciate you sending them to me, tell your friends about the podcast. I have the ability to see how many people are, are downloading. I'm not crazy about watching, but it is, it is, uh, if nobody ever listened to this, 
would I keep doing it? Probably, because I do enjoy putting things out into the world, even though I'm not advertising it. The only advertising is putting the podcast out there. So it's really word of mouth that if you're listening to this, that means you enjoy animals, love animals, you enjoy science or love science. And I hope that this has all been beneficial to you. I hope you've learned something. That's my goal. That's my mission is to inform and educate. And to educate means, in, in my mind, to give you some information that you can can put into use. And I think that's true of a lot of the podcasts that I listen to, trying to help you improve your life. I'm trying to help improve your life and your animal's life through through the power of, of science and information. And that's how we make progress, I think, as a species. We learn more and more, try to put it into play and adapt it to the world and the world that we have and try to make things better and more understandable. And it's all a process. There's no perfection here. I think you will probably realize that and know that. We're uh, human beings are not perfect. Animals are not perfect. We do the best that we can, try to move things forward, relieve suffering as much as possible, get better, get more informed, and and do what we can in this life. So I, I, I know the holidays are coming up. We just passed Thanksgiving. Christmas is coming. Hopefully, uh, I'll strive to put out, again, one podcast a week. It's my goal. If I don't, I'm sorry about that, but it happens. I'm a one-man show here, and I still have to make money. I'm not independently wealthy, unfortunately. If I was, I would probably put out a podcast every day or nearly every day. But it's been fun, and I'm glad to get back at it. And I hope you find this enjoyable. And I will, again, put uh, put in the show notes the uh, timestamps basically that you can can zip around at. So I hope you enjoyed this potpourri. I haven't watched Jeopardy for many years, but when I uh, was watching it, I really enjoyed Alex Trebek, and uh, it was always fun. So this is a little homage to him, and uh, I hope to do this potpourri uh, whenever it's necessary. When I get these little tidbits that build up, and I, if you found that this potpourri. Uh, episode has been enjoyable. Uh, please let me know versus the other episodes. And uh, if you have any suggestions for a potpourri episode, happy to uh, happy to review that. Take care, everybody. Happy holidays and be well.